Welcome to Better Ways for Living, brought to you by HLS Healthcare. I'm Nick, and we're really excited to bring this series to you. We've collected a range of guests that we get to speak with current affairs about healthcare, disability, SDA, all of the things that are really interesting to us at the moment. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Let's meet today's guest, Judy Martin from Anchor Excellence. The principles of being funded to make people well are miles ahead of Australia, and there are many, many countries doing it. We've had some big wake-ups and shake-ups since then, you know, the Royal Commission and all the rest, but I think we did have complacency. And we're going to go around the globe and look at what other people are doing, whether they're doing it better or worse, and if it's better, bring those ideas back. Judy, how are you? Yeah, it's good, Nick, and it's wonderful to see you after all those years of world darkness. COVID. So I think COVID. no one... Did you even have COVID? We did in Melbourne. Well, we're in Tasmania yeah. and we keep it a little bit secret how we felt with COVID down there. Look, we had six weeks of it and I think that was a big shock to Tasmania. You know, six weeks where you couldn't go out and, you know, five walks with a dog a day. And But I look back now and actually I was walking down the streets of Melbourne yeah. last night with my daughter and her partner and saying, can you believe that we couldn't do this and we might have gone to prison for doing this in our lifetime? Yeah. Unbelievable. So, uh, Judy Martin, who's who? I, I did a little bit of research, so I want to know if you're Judy Martin, the pro wrestler, Judy Martin, oh. the singer, or are oh. you Judy Martin, the executive lead? So, I think just to introduce you to any of the listeners oh. there. So, who is who is Judy Martin? When I did that research, I found that you you have many talents. Well, <laughs> Nick, I'm definitely not Judy Martin, the wrestler. Right. Yes. <laughs> the singer, debatable. Yeah. I've always wanted. To, I'm not the not the Judy Martin singer that you found. You obviously have no photos with these. No. But uh, Judy Martin, the executive lead, yes, that's I Good. am. The executive so, lead of SAGE nice. Study Tours. So SAGE Study Tours. And so we'll talk about SAGE. And mm. But where did, where did you grow up? What did you want to be? And, and how's your career led you to now where you are with Anchor Excellence and SAGE Study Tours? Yeah. Interesting um, looking back on that journey, Nick, and I do that a lot when I'm travelling internationally. I grew up on the west coast of Tasmania, which wow. even to Tasmanians is a like the end of the earth. My father was a geologist. Um, we lived in a small mining town. Our life, I went away to boarding school. We had no school after grade eight, so you had to go away to boarding school. Mm. So I went away to boarding school at age 11, and all I ever wanted was to be invited home to a farm of the other boarders. But all they ever wanted was to cut. We had a great family, a wonderful family. I had a wonderful father. He died very early, which will come into why I ended up in the healthcare industry. But they all wanted to come to my place because it was always fun to be at our house. But apart from that, I spent my life underground. So we'd put on the hard hat and the, really? the miner's light and our gumboots and we'd walk in two kilometres into the mine and then down we'd go in the shaft and we had to take turn our lights off and Dad would make us feel for water because we knew if there was a crash you'd have to find where the crack was if right. the water was coming through look back now and I think that is just so bizarre it was we had a gravel yeah. road out to the northwest coast no tv but in that journey it was a very male dominated town it was very rugged and the highlight was the Sunday football between the teams around the west coast they had two pubs in the town I think my mother lived there for 30 years and never stepped foot in either of the bars of those pubs. My mum and dad were on every committee in town. 
the secretary, treasurer, chairman, whatever, of the netball, the football, the social, softball. The... Consequently, we played or I played every sport. We swam. We I was a state swimming champion. Well, you wouldn't know it to look at me now, would you? I was a swimmer. Yes, yeah, yeah. so, so big swimmer. I had, yeah. you know, aspirations of the Olympics. I think one of the girls I swam against um, went to the Olympics. I love the story that Chris Fagan, Brisbane Lions coach, I swam against him in the under-12s because there wasn't enough right. kids to have boys and girls. You swam against everyone. Did you beat swam, him? I beat him. <laughs> so every time Brisbane Lions come on TV, I do have a little... Chris Fagan, everyone goes, yeah. yes, mum swam against him in the under-12s and won. So it was a charmed life. Yeah. But when we lived there, we didn't think it was. Looking back, and often if I'm on a stage study tour in London or New York, I think Judy drew it, the little girl from Rosebury, Tasmania, to myself, to think yep. you really can do anything. Yeah. And that's taking gender aside. You can yeah. do anything. Yeah. But in that, my mum was a teacher, so she always worked. So it was never questionable that, women had the same opportunities as men. We didn't have that big city or competitive schooling or anything like that. It was just all community. Everybody helped everybody. You never questioned that if someone got sick, the whole community would rally. And my father had uh, rheumatoid arthritis all his life, so he would go underground a lot, but he was very physically affected by his rheumatoid arthritis. So that sort of made me a open to the health care industry years before I probably might have been in any other life. And so career-wise, so so either teacher or nursing and you ended up in nursing? Well, I, I actually left matric. I was lazy. I had a brain, but I didn't use it. It was, you know, if you get 51, who will know in 20 years, which is still true. Um, I didn't use it anywhere near as much as I should have, noting that mum and dad were paying for you know good education. But I left and left matric, or what is it, year 12, they call it. Back, back right. then it was matriculation. Yep. Left matric yep. and went to the local next town and worked in the ANZ bank because I wanted to get money. And I convinced my parents that I was going to buy a house and do all this wonderful good things. I had no idea, no intention of doing that. I just wanted to really have a good gap year. I had a gap year before they invented them. And then I said to mum and dad, you know, I've got a really caring nature and I want to be a nurse. Well, that wasn't true. I had found out that you got paid $9 a week to go nursing. Right. And if you went to uni, you got nothing. (laughs) So I still had that, you know, care with dad, but really it was the $9 a week that was the attractor. Yeah. So I went to, got into the Royal Hobart Hospital for my nursing training but I couldn't get in for the next intake. So, And I think I also got into Launceston General Hospital, but the Hobart one was later. So I thought, well, I can work at the bank and earn a little bit more. So I was money driven. (laughs) At that young age, it wasn't a bad deal. So I did go off to um, Hobart and did my nursing training. And the minute, and during that training, dad died. So very young, he was 49, which, didn't hit me until I became 49 how young he was Mm. and it's still now quite odd me being 60 to look back and think my father was 49 it was yeah it's a bit of a head twist so my mum had to leave the mining town because there are my younger brother's siblings were still in high school mum moved to Hobart I was now nursing at the Royal so life took a whole different turn and then I finished nursing and ended up at the Alfred, came over to the Alfred yep. in Melbourne doing burns nursing. I arrived in January in the 
Ash Wednesday bushfires happened in wow. the yeah. February, so it was a baptism of fire. No, pun, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, but marvellous, fantastic time at the Alfred here and learnt. But, so you covered everything. You covered intensive care, mm. emergency department, medical, nursing, surgical. And then I ran into an, a girlfriend I trained with. I went home to Hobart to see mum and was a Hobart nurse there. And she said, oh, my God, I'm working in Darwin and they pay for you to get there. And they give you a, a unit and you live in this village. So I turned around to mum and said, I'm going to the Royal Darwin Hospital. So off I chuffed. And in those days, I went by bus, Melbourne to Adelaide and then Adelaide up to Darwin by bus and moved into the Royal Darwin Hospital, Hospital Village. This is in the mid-80s and had a ball. It was fair. And very remote then. Darwin was not the cosmopolitan city it is now. So had a fabulous few years up there doing a lot of Indigenous health, went up to Bathurst and Melville Island and I remember once a PA came over the PA system, there's been a Ross River outbreak in Alice Springs, would anyone want to go to Alice Springs? So standing next to a girlfriend I said we're going, so we chuffed down to admin and um, ended up in Alice Springs doing a lot of remote yeah. nursing and so I look at all those early years of, of my care or nursing career and think the experiences I got I don't think young kids get that now they go to the adventure yeah. with a career and adventure but also what covered you know as I said remote area nursing indigenous care you, you learned so much and it just became part of the fabric of who you were in your this professional journey that started to take me somewhere that I didn't drive it mm. just started to mould around me but I learnt far more than I had had I just stayed at the Royal Hobart Hospital and yeah. gone to a ward and yeah. Yeah it's because it's one of the reasons for, for these these this series of, of discussions that we're doing is about all manner of things that affect us in life and whilst it then talks to healthcare specifically but that's really interesting to me because it was about accepting and tackling opportunity when it came and sometimes it feels like today we're a bit insular we don't necessarily want to step out of our comfort zone as much but you the opportunity presented comes over the PA we're going and you just tackled it and and, and I don't even know if it was opportunity it was excitement but also Nick I think now when we're talking about workforce and attracting people to healthcare and aged care and I, I think of this again it was just opportunity but this Adventure. It adventure. wasn't excitement, it was adventure. Yeah. And I think we've lost that ability to have adventure because everyone's trying to pinhole themselves into this career and um, you're in aged care. Well, aged care is just, as you know, hundreds of jobs mm. in aged care. There could be marketing, there mm. could be international relations, there could be personal care, there could be IT the, the adventure side of that's gone a little bit. We're too quick to bracket ourselves and think we've got to stay and we've got to stay on this career path maybe in one organisation. And there is so much adventure to be had in health and aged care. Yeah. And even my morphing from healthcare into aged care, that's another story in itself. You know, how that happened, it was not, not planned. It was a serendipitous opportunity. I was, so I'd gone to Darwin. I met my now husband who's we've been together over 40 years. But back then he was a young naval officer. It was Darwin. There was nurses, doctors, naval officers and Air Force and we all socialised together. And 
So I met him and then started the life of a naval officer's partner and wife and moved around. But I ended up in Sydney with him, married now and with a baby, and the Gulf War broke out. So he chuffed off to the Gulf War and see you in eight months. I was in Sydney with a young baby, didn't know anybody, had no family there. And my brother came to visit one day and said, oh, do you know there's a nursing home just around the corner from where you live? And I thought, well, I needed some eight to four work. And so I walked around there with my pram, crying, because I, and I often tell this story now, you know, tears, thinking at my nursing graduation, Judy drew it, the nurse most likely to make it. And here I was going to a nursing home. Now I'm disgusted by that now, that that was what I thought then. Yeah, yeah. But it shows that, that if I was thinking it as a health practitioner, the stigma that was attached then, I'm, I'm, it's a lot better now, but certainly I went around thinking the nurse most likely to make it, I'm going to a nursing home. Well, I got around there and a fantastic woman. It was Vaucluse Nursing Home and it was owned by a couple. And I walked in the door and Paul Keating's Trading Guarantee Act had just come in. You, every employer has to put so much percentage of their income into training. Training. She said to me, would you like to be our nurse educator? Two days a week and you can bring the baby. And because her idea was if you bring the baby into aged care, what a wonderful setting for the residents who live there. So she was ahead of her time. I was going to say, it's almost like the birth of multi-generational care. That's, so she, she got it. And, and it wasn't, you know, it was an older place. It was a very, very high care clinical model then, but it was still care, but it was mm. a hospital setting. But she was the most amazing woman. So I ended up working there for two years and became the nurse educator. But what happened was, so I started and on about my fifth day, a funeral home walked in and said, we're opening a new fun funeral home up in Bondi Junction. And obviously they wanted business from the nursing home, but, she, but they said, but we can offer you things like use of our training rooms if you need training rooms. And so I was the new nurse educator. I thought, well, every other aged care home in Sydney must have the same problem. They've just been given people to be nurse educators. So I rang around, no computers in those days, or they'd just started. So I rang around every nurse nursing home in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and I said, I'd like to convene a meeting and we're going to meet at the funeral home, brand new funeral home with brand new training rooms. So all these people came that had been told, you're now the direct um, nurse educator. So we had a meeting and I said, how about we establish ourselves as the Eastern Suburbs Aged Care Nurse Educators Committee and we'll nominate who wants to write, like I'll write on incontinence and you write on falls and you write on nutrition and we'll put it all together and we'll swap each other's notes and then we'll have a nurse educators program for aged care and that's how and I think that that committee went for about 20 years really after that so that was my journey into aged care so then I became very you know well what's happening in aged care and then we started doing staff swapping around the eastern suburbs. So again, it was making something like COVID, making something out of a situation that had started, and, and in this case, it was training in aged care. And then not long after that, so I worked there for a few years, loved it, and I said, the director of nursing, she, she changed my life. And I often look back and thought she was the point that 
got me into aged care and mm. be it God, serendipity, whatever else. That was where I was supposed to be at that time. And my husband came back from the Gulf nine months later. I must have stayed there for another year and then I, I started to part-time at another education um, service for aged care. And again, that was for long-term unemployed. There was a lot of funding going into um, aged care and training for long-term unemployed. So I worked for a company in King's Cross that had set themselves up as an education department and were making a lot of money out of aged care but didn't give a damn about aged care. Mm -hmm. They were just getting a lot of funding. So another nurse and I got together and we said, well, we were going to write a, a formal aged care training program. So we did. We met on weekends and wrote it and then we took it to what was called ANTA in those days. I think it was the Australian National Training Authority. Took in our paperwork you know, and got it registered. And just at that time, my husband came home and said, oh, we've been posted to Malaysia on a diplomatic posting. I thought, oh. So off we chuffed to Malaysia and I thought, oh, well, there goes that career. And at our first cocktail party, which was the High Commissioner welcoming us to the, the, the delegation of a High Commission in, in Malaysia, I was talking to a guest and it was an architect. And what do you do? And he said, well, I'm an architect, Australian architect. I've got an office over here and we're actually working in aged care. And I said, oh, my God, well, I'd love to talk to you. But at that stage, I wasn't allowed to work. I had to play mahjong and bridge and yep. entertain. Yep. And I had an entertaining allowance and that was my job, was to support Peter really? in yeah. his role. And so I said, well, look, I'll love to come and look at your office. And I went over to their office the next day. He sent a driver and off I chuffed in his car. And he said, oh, we're running an aged care conference because Malaysia don't have an aged care industry, for want of a better word. Filial piety was very strong there. The family look after. So the, it was almost abhorrent to think that yeah. aged care was an industry. And he said, but we are running a conference because we do need places for um, aged care. And, um, and I said, well, look, I'll lick envelopes for you with your invitations because I thought when I go home in a year on my resume, it will be assisted with International Aged Care Conference. Okay. So, you know, when you're, anyway, to have it, you know, I had done that. So that went on the, the resume and he said, oh, that would be great. Went over the next day to help him do the invitations and he hung up the phone and said, oh, one of our speakers has cancelled. And he turned around and he said, oh, you can't speak on the Australian aged care industry, can you? Now, Nick, at that stage, one of my skills, and it still is, was convincing people I had them, not, <laughs> not actually having them. <laughs> so I said, yes, I can speak on the Australian aged care industry. Computers had just started. Right. I, I had an email address given to me by the Australian High Commission, but I didn't have anyone to email. So I thought, well, who do I email? Because they'd given me an address, but I thought no, none of my colleagues were on this thing called email. Anyway... Fortuitously, I went home that day and the, our unpacking had come and I was ticking off my boxes and they said box 86 and I said, no, 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 box 86 should be back in Australia in storage. And I said, well, no, it's here. So I ticked it off and thought, well, I wonder what that box is. And then at the end I said, oh, we're missing box 68. And they said, oh, no, well, box 68's back in Australia in storage. And I looked up what box 68 was and that was all my entertaining gear. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been told I've got to come here and 
tain are now my boxes back in storage. Well, what's box 86? And I opened box 86 and it was all my training notes from my training program on aged care that I had got registered before I'd left. So, and at that very time, just that I'd sorted this out thinking, thank you, God. I'm, I'm like getting goosebumps here, yes. right? The Australian High Commission van pulled up in the house and two little men popped out with a cane basket and said, Mrs. Martin, here's your entertaining gear from the Australian High Commission. <laughs> and it was all our plates and glasses and everything that was in box 68 that I thought I had to bring myself. So that started a whole other journey. I ended up um, working for Thompson Adset. They, they couldn't pay me, but they would say, oh, you know, you and Peter are going up to Penang for a weekend or... Um, whatever. So starting this talking about the Australian aged care industry at their conference, well, then we're up, you know, a week later to Thailand. And I remember my husband came home and he said, oh, you know, what did you do today? Almost being a bit tongue in cheek. And I said, well, actually, I've just had my travel organised because I'm off to Thailand next week. And he was going, oh, why aren't I surprised? Yeah. We had a fantastic armour. Kids were little then. So all that was sorted. I didn't have to worry about that. Yeah, so for six months I went around Malaysia and Thailand and then ended up doing some work as a consultant for the Malaysian government on aged care and therein started the rest of my life. Amazing. Yes. When I look back, so, it was amazing. At the time, you didn't think it, did you? Like in those when we were young, no. 20s, married, young kids, you know, it was just, oh, where's the next adventure coming? <laughs> well, I think sometimes you have to position yourself to kick the goal, right? And so, you know, the opportunities come, somebody's passed you the ball and you've just been open to the opportunity. Mm -hmm. All of that has played into leading to where you are now. And, um, and I was, also, yeah, 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 yes. exactly. So again, just about fortuitous opportunity. Mm. It was excellent. And you're also currently a member on, on of GAN, the Global Aging Network. So, so you're, you've not just had experience in Australia, you've had global experience and, is it safe to assume that that's what's led to saying, well, hey, this is something that the industry needs? Is that global exposure, that global experience? Totally, Nick. And what happened was when I was in Malaysia, look, yes, I got, I, I talk in jest how all this happened, but then I thought, well, I have to do my research now. You know, and I said computers were just starting to be learnt. So I thought, I, can, I can't just be a fake here. You know, it's, it's all good to tell the story, but now I really do need to know what I'm talking about if I'm going to be representing Thompson Adset around Asia doing this. So I did a lot of research and we stayed in Malaysia for a year and I did that. And then I came back to Australia and we were posted to Cairns, I think. And the Thompson Adset kept saying, we still want to employ you. And I said, well, what, what will we do? And they said, we'll make it up as we go. So to them, I look back now, again, this is the 90s, I was almost like their clinical advisor on building aged care um, homes. Now, that was unheard of then, so good good on them too for thinking laterally mm. of having a health person on look at putting into their design and their model of care. And they said, oh, we're doing a job in Cairns, we'll work, all, we'll work out, you know, employing you to do that. So, again, it was opportunistic and time, but a very good company that were invested and they were doing international a lot of international work. So I became very interested in that as well and then became very interested. I'd now done Indigenous work. I'd now been living in Malaysia. I'd 
travelled around Thailand and up to Hong Kong. So there was a cultural mix that started to come into my early conversations on aged mm. care, going, well, when I was in Darwin and Alice Springs and up in the islands nursing with um, approach to elders, and then I was in Malaysia with a very filial piety um, cultural background and then now I'm back in Australia and looking at Australian for a country that's doing uh, for a company that's doing a lot of health work in the Middle East they were doing then and up in China it started to really think well there is cultural influences in aged care what happened then was I went on a study tour that was run by a very unsavory character one that ended up on a current affair and all those TV programs and it was for aged care and I thought at the time I'd applied for a scholarship and won it and so it was big news in the family until I found out when I got on this trip that everyone else was on a scholarship and had won it and yeah. some of those Australians I'm still quite good colleagues with actually and we would turn up to places in the States and they, were, they wouldn't know who we were or where we'd come from. or So it was a really interesting journey. But I, but I learnt a lot on this um, study tour. So I came back to Australia and I was at a function um, with Rod Young, who was the then CEO of ACA, Australian Care, which became Laser. Right. So that yes. it was the for-profit association. And they had just started ITAC, the um, IT and aged care, yep. having a drink, sitting over a glass of wine at the conference dinner. And he said, Judy, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, well, you tell me first, right? And he said, well, I'm going to have a winery in Wollongong area or something. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to run credible aged care study tours. And we're going to go around the globe and look at what other people are doing, whether they're doing it better or worse, and if it's better bring those ideas back and if it's what we think is worse, what we think is worse, we're going to look at is that cultural and is it cultural, mm. is it really worse? Or So that was the conversation. So I went to Thompson Adset and at the time I was also doing some work for Blue Care with Steve Muggleton, who was the CEO of Blue Care and I took the idea to both Steve and Thompson Adset and said, I've got an idea for you and it's for Thompson Adset, it's a really good marketing idea because we'll take... You, you already take your clients, so we'll take clients, but we'll take other people. But if we do this as marketing, I don't want to do it. I want to do this as driving industry best practice for our aged care industry. There will be marketing and business development outcomes, but if that's how it's done, I don't want to, it's not, it's not how I want to do it or pitch it. But we need industry representatives like Steve Muggleton, CEO of Blue Care. He was trying to change a lot of things then. There weren't marketing jobs then or business development jobs. It was just let's have a conference and by the way, we'll start. So it was all growing and all new. So Thompson Adset said, well, what are you going to do with that, mate? And I said, well, we will use that to fund me putting together the study tours and then we will go to industry and say, you run these for your members, but instead of being a big sponsor, we will be the sponsor by running it. And that's how it started. So our first study tour was to China in 2006. Yep. We had 12 people come, a book, and nine came. A lot of people said, what are you going to learn about in China? We saw aged care facilities that really were hospitals out of the 40s and 50s. That was one side of the coin. And then we saw community care on the corner of every suburb in the same way we have childcare centres 
that this was a country that had grown up with a one-child policy. Um, they were now urbanisation had started. The son was the golden boy. So we had a lot of daughters with parents but who were married to the sons whose parents had to be looked after mm -hmm. as a priority. But China had respite centres, not in the way in that early 2000s that we were running respite centres as almost a... Um, it was a cottage industry, and I will call it for what it was. Our industry then was a cottage industry, the aged care industry, and our respite centres weren't particularly... They were, they were with all good intent, but they were a place for respite for a day for the carers. The, what we saw in China were university, dancing, calligraphy, active wellness centres that were so far advanced that anything we could conceptualise... But people with age. People with age. Yeah. So instead of dropping your children at a childcare centre in the morning, you dropped your parents at, they weren't respite centres, at the activity centres, and they were engaged. It was yeah. like being on steroids. So people were going, what What are you, this is 2006, what, what have you learnt? And I said, I have learnt more in that 12 days than I've learnt probably in the last, yeah. on, on shifting our idea of not, dropping off for care, dropping off for wellness and activity. And it was Tai Chi and wellness and everything was centred on this. You're coming here because you need a little bit of care, but we're going to give you wellness. That had a lasting impact on me. And that was, as said, 2006. We continued the journey the next year. I think we went to San Francisco and we saw some amazing places again. There's a, a program called the PACE program all-person-centred program, which is, again, had started, interestingly, from a Chinese community in San Francisco, which I found interesting, having been to China yeah, the year before. And I thought, I can make this linkage on culturally. But it was a, a program where, again, you were taken for the day, but they had then brought transport in and the transport would go and pick up someone. So we had high-care, high-care residents who were living at home brought to the community centre where they were given their high care medical needs as well as all this other activity. But meals were provided and, you know, it was just this functioning, high-level, active wellness approach to our parents aren't going to an aged care facility, they're going to stay with us, but we have to work during the day. So the SAGE was born and SAGE, as I said, I'll go back a step now, again with Rod, sitting around again with Thompson Adset and some other colleagues, I've still got the email of all the acronyms and what could we call this concept of study tours. And I remember coming up with SAGE, you know, the getting of wisdom, and SAGE, that beautiful colour, SAGE, the getting of wisdom. And then we had to find a work backwards and it was studying and advancing global elder care. Yeah. So again, it had this wonderful story to it. It was embraced. We went to ACCA and AXA and said, can you run this as a industry association benefit for your members? And we'll be the major sponsor. They embraced it as a value add for their members. And that's how it grew. Mm. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And we had more demand. We had people coming into the industry, which I'll talk about in a moment now, even more so that is now in the last few years. But people coming into the industry who weren't from health or, or were from health but not aged care. Probably in those days it was more they were from health. Now it's they're not from yeah. a clinical aged care health 
or any industry at all. So people were wanting to be um, somewhere in their nick. I'd had a job working when the first Aged Care Act had been. I had a myriad of jobs in there with my husband's posting all in, intertwined all between that and the 90s. But it's interesting to still be around now with our second, the next Aged Care Act, because I remember being involved in getting involved in a lot of committees back then for right. the 1997 Act. Right. But that's how SAGE was born and started. And then what I did then was, in those days, we're now using the computers yeah. a lot more. So I would look and look best practice Aged Care Oregon. best, And I would search hours upon hours upon hours until I thought, well, we're doing this for our AXA and Aged Care, ACA, back then, before it became LASA, members. There must be these associations, so I need to get smarter here. So then I would contact the association in Denmark or Sweden or England and say, this is what we're doing in Australia. What are your best practice organisations? Mm. Who would you identify as mm. your leaders in industry? So I'd cut down my workload of looking for particular organisations and I started to channel SAGE through the peak associations, which then started to, I started to know all the people in the peak associations. And then I had already connected with an organisation called IASA, which is the International Association of Homes and Services for the Aged, now known as Global Aging Network. Okay. So I'd contacted IASA and said, this is my intent and this is what I'm doing. And in doing that, I'd found that they were having a conference. So I thought, right, well, I'll take a SAGE trip. We'll go to their conference. We'll connect at this international level conference and then we can collaborate and work out more countries to go to on SAGE and they can know, excuse me, what the Australians are doing with this looking internationally and bringing messages back. And then all sorts of things start to come out of that, exchanges and learning about exchanges and then coming to your trip, we were going to Belgium and I knew how the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade worked because I'd had a diplomatic posting. So I knew that you had to promote trade and all the rest and Brendan Nelson was the UN ambassador in Belgium at that stage and he trained at the Royal Hobart Hospital when I trained my nursing as a doctor. He was a doctor, I was a nurse. So I went around a few channels, not through the, you know, let's write a million official letters to try and get our Australian delegation to Belgium. I went back and around and ended up, he wrote back very generously and said, I would love to, he's a doctor and knew a lot of my medical friends say, hey, I'd love to host you, but let's not do it at the MC, we'll do it at our residence. And I knew that there was funding for these sorts of things because we lived mm, that life. Mm. So then we're running a um, delegation to Belgium where we're hosted by the UN ambassador, Dr. Brendan Nelson. So that looked fantastic for the Australian SAGE delegation. So then what we did was invite some of our European contacts to that event. So that looked was fantastic for them to have it. Looked great for the Australian embassy, mm, embassy mm. because it wasn't a Commonwealth country. And then we did the same when we went up to Denmark for the first time. So I wrote to the trade commissioner there and said, "Got a delegation coming, looking at." And that's when you and I first met. When we met, yes. Spoke about the stigma around aged care. How do we 
attract people into because you've you've just spoken about a career that's incredible that's all stemmed from aged care that's taken you all mm. over the world met all sorts of people and dignitaries and all these sorts of things and yet we're struggling to attract people to want Still, to move into this right and do you know nick you know we talked about that stigma of me going around to a nursing home thinking i had failed yeah because all my friends, I'd been in Burns at the Alfred Hospital, you know, and then I'd gone to Darwin Adventure and now I'm in aged care. Even we in our nursing training weren't exposed to aged care as a separate industry. Mm. We did community health, but we weren't taught about it. We weren't, but in actual fact, everything we did in health related in some way to aged care because, you know, complex diseases, you have everything, but it wasn't seen as sexy and it's still not, but I still, we've got better at it and we've got better at it as an industry, but still we can't track people because it's still, even labelling it aged care, mm. you know, with wellness for seniors, wellness for ageing, it's aged care mm. and I, I still struggle with I think since I was a young nurse and first started in aged care when I started this educators committee I used to say to them how can we ever solve when aged care is commonwealth funded and the states are federal health is federally funded by the states and at 65 I have a wound at 64 I have a wound and care and I suddenly need care and I took to the ED department and I may get state health funding. And one year later, I'm in the aged care system under a completely different funding system. How does that work? And it cannot work. We cannot continue to go down this path of health by the states and aged care by the Commonwealth when we are dealing with health needs in aged care. Mm -hmm. It's just not... But the fact the um, pay disparity gave a very bad message for yes. many, many years and still does. I think we still talk or tend to, and I'm, when I say we, I'm not talking about the industry, I'm talking about those outside the industry looking back in, including health. Mm. We see aged care as this very complex clinical profession. We don't... so targeted into this little box of very high need dementia, yep. incontinence, frailty. So we've boxed it into a very clinical, segmented career instead of everything else that's out there that surrounds all that. And no matter all that that surrounds it all, like a provider, and I talked about this a moment ago, in a provider you've got lawyers working there now. You've got IT, information systems people. You've got marketing people. You've mm. got wellness people, physio people, OT people. You've got a holistic, magnificent holistic approach, but we're not selling that well no. enough as an industry. Mm. Of, It's like a hotel, looking at a hotel and thinking you've got your hospitality, you've got your events, you've got your, your bedrooms, you know, your room nights. We're just saying, well, that's a hotel. You're not saying... Mm you can get into this whole industry. And I think in hospitality, you understand it a bit more. You say, oh, well, you go and work in the hospitality industry for a core hotels or for, you know, all the bits that you can do. But when yeah. we say aged care, we still suddenly think oh, really ill people in a bed. That's how we bracket mm -hmm. it. One of the biggest learnings I've had 
from Sage around the world is I still think calling it again, we've got a very good system in Australia. That is one thing I will say. From going around the world, the delegates who come on Sage, and I'll actually haven't even said what they are, I'll say that in a moment, but the delegates who come on Sage come back going, we're pretty okay. Right. You know, we're pretty damning of our own industry until we get out and look back on in it. And we have got quite a good industry. What we, what I don't think we've got at a political level is a social approach to ageing. And that is we are funded for illness still. No matter what's happening out there in the rest of the world where the lessons are very clearly there for those who make our policy decisions to see we are still funded for our level of acuity, not our level of wellness. Now, the states, God forbid we don't want the um, state's health system, but what they do do well is in their insurance system, so let's talk about the principle of the funding, not the all the pol- yep. political background to that, yep. but the principle of the funding is if you go into aged care or go into high care or go into respite or rehabilitation, you are funded to leave. So the aim is to get that person well again mm. and fit again. And I think in principle, that is fabulous. And and then returning, so admissions after that, your funding decreases because you're not keeping up that level of wellness and and health. And so in principle doesn't matter about the, what the health system's doing down here, but the principles of being funded to make people well and keep people well and keep people actively ageing are miles ahead of Australia and there are many, many countries doing it that way. Well, that's so that to me, just going back to one of the things you said there about how we actually do it pretty well, we've got a good system and, and that's probably true and you're better placed even than me to 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 make that call that sounds like a dangerous place to be as well does that breed complacency do you think yeah i think because because we go actually we're okay so we don't have to change i think go back 10 years and i think that's exactly where we were we've had some big wake-ups and shake-ups since then you know the royal commission and all the rest but i think we did have complacency i think we very there's some fantastic for-profit or private providers in Australia. Back then, I think the there was a very big divide between the not-for-profits and the for-profits, and it was a tangible divide almost, yes. you know. Oh, goodness, you've gone to the dark side if you went to the private providers. Well, um, we had the two different industry associations even, didn't we? No one spoke about it, but it was there. Now we're an industry together because mm. we have to be mm. together, which is a good, great thing. We have to be together as an industry. But I think there was a complacency that the not-for-profits will look after that. You know, they're caring. I think there was a complacency in society. Oh, we've got our church groups. They look after our children and our homeless and our... There was no thought. Mm. Look, I'm not saying there was no thought, but when you talk about media and all those sorts of things, I think as an issue for a country... There was no thought about it. Mm. No out there thought. I think now we're everywhere in aged care because we have to be because there was complacency. And now it, suddenly the, the wake up, those of us that have been in industry for all these years, we're always fighting for it. But I think the message is now getting out there past our little walls of, of industry that the complacency needs to be addressed in that it's not sustainable anymore. 
the not-for-profit church groups are now big businesses. Yes. 20 years ago, they were very, uh, you know, a lot of the big organisations now, Blue Care being one, the Uniting Churches, they were still small, isolated pockets being managed by local committees under the brand of Blue Care, Uniting Care, Anglicare, you know, they were run by the little, and I worked for one in the 80s up in Queensland, a little, it was a branded, had the brand of a big organisation, but it was actually run by some very well-to-do committee members who were normally the lawyers in the town, the, the general store owners, and some of who were there for the good of the greater good, and some who were there to have on their resume that they were on a committee of a... So that, that if you look at that transition of who prov- provided who, we are now, you know, they're big organisations and they have to be often to be sustainable to have and access easily, or not easily, but access what we're talking about. The And this comes into to your organisation, what you're doing, equipment, different staff levels, different, all that stuff that we're saying takes the village to care is not just one carer. It is all that surrounding and, you know, you need resourcing to do that. Well, even if we had the liquidity to go and throw more people at the problem, we don't right now have access to the people. No. So we, we have to supplement with technology, don't we? Not replace because there's nothing to replace. We need more people. So we have to find ways to be more efficient, don't we? Yep, and it's, it's a clever way. It's not just saying equipment and IT and technology, technology not just being computer technology, technology being... Assistive technology. Assist, assistive yeah. technology, that's right. And we that is the solution. And again, that is what we're seeing very clearly. Japan, we've had three stage trips to Japan. They, and I talk about this often too. They call warm, warm hands. Warm hands. So the warm hands, which is the hands-on person-to-person care, remains warm hands mm. and never will it be replaced. No. What they have replaced is the assistive technology. They have put investment into, and I'm, I'm not plugging HLS, but I am, but I'm yeah. not here. I'm not saying no, this because away. of this. But you are, <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean? You are here as HLS, but sure. I'm here supporting that assistive technology mm. response. It, it is needed. The, the countries that have implemented it years ago, when we were going to look at it, yeah. going, oh, my God, you know, 12 years ago in the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries, oh, my God, every nursing home's got a hoist. We were blown away that that was everyday um, Normal, it wasn't, normality. It, it yeah, wasn't it was just, not considered. Yeah. Why would we not? I mean, I remember once we went to the nursing home of the future at Alberg, up, yep. up north of Denmark, yeah. and we were all going, but what gave you the foresight to... And they couldn't believe how we were so astounded that this was not everyday thinking, to have all this assistive technology to allow you know, four people to do a lift. Well, now that four people became two people. Mm. Two people to do a lift, that two people became one person with the help of assistive technology. And I remember that clearly, our group being, we got back on the bus and we we're going, oh, they were a little bit shocked that we were so shocked yeah. that this was so normal. Normal. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, some of the documentation that, you know, like WorkSafe documentation still doesn't, it's old. 
he's 20 odd years yes. old now around manual handling and it doesn't make any allowance for what what's now in Australia at least being called, called single-handed care or yes. single-person care. And I'm not saying that it's the right solution in every case, but the fear is that if they go outside of those guidelines, of course, and something goes wrong. That's right. So they, they need, but those guidelines need to be reviewed surely in line with and the evolution of technology. We've talked about that a lot, saying we've now had a Royal Commission and we're changing our Act, and, and, and it is a new Human Rights Act, you know, Human mm. Rights very clearly going to be in the New Age Care Act, and you've hit the ball. We've got other acts that we have to work within and legislations yeah. that we're all now being told to come forward and come ahead and still work with, as you said, 20-year-old Act. So to me, I don't think we've, we're um, advocating enough as an industry on saying to the government, yes, we're getting our our ducks in a row in aged care and health, but however, you're making us work mm. with other legislations that aren't moving as quickly. So how how do we how do we do this? How do you want us to do this when those yeah. acts aren't changing, but we have to change? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd love to see more industry collaboration across the different stakeholders for yep. these these kinds of conversations to evolve and and move the industry forward in in that area. Mm. Mm. Even education. Again, and I'm talking about, you know, talking about two government departments collaborating. We've seen a lot of retirement communities on university bases where the students work in the um, retirement village or the aged care facility and then the residents go to the university. And So it's two government departments that you would never think need mm. to collaborate and have a um, student accommodation on aged care facilities and somewhere aged care facilities have said we don't need these big 160 room they've turned into student accommodation and then the smaller household model for the very high care palliative care so they're they're changing their utilization of their space but it's that collaboration with different government policy so it, it, i mean that's another example but it's what you said is the collaboration of many industries getting together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. NDIS working with aged care, not sort of, oh, now all you see in the media is the competition, no, not competition, the competitive nature of how their funding is working. We don't see that how we're collaborating and how can we collaborate again. You turn 65 and suddenly a financial delineation is made by your physical disability mm. what how does mm. that work so based on your extensive exposure to the international market what have you seen that you believe could profoundly impact or change the way we approach aged care in australia i think all that we've just been talking about nick the wellness and active aging approach mm. it is not hard mm. it's so not hard and so many countries are just doing it as a natural well social democracy the Scandinavian countries, everyone says, yes, but they've paid taxes all their life. Well, so, so they haven't. Weren't they lucky? You know, at the time they thought they were paying too many and now they're reaping the benefits in their, in their ageing phase of life because of that tax benefit. Let's take the money out of it and let's forget that bit of the conversation. Let's stick to the social approach, which is active and wellness and active wellness ageing. Why aren't we... If we have a funded aged care system, so we can talk about funding. And people go, oh, don't, you know, 
argue against the government and don't government bash. No, I'm not doing any of that. And I don't think we are as an industry when we have these conversations. I think that's just a label that's been given to us, given to our discussions, that turns it into a negative, not a positive. The positive is we are funded by our government. That's good. That's why, as you said, we had that complacency. We are funded by the government. The arguing for how that funding is given and used and implemented, and it, I've said previously, it is not a wellness and active ageing approach. It needs to be. The Scandinavian countries take out their funding, the principles of active ageing and wellness, China, Japan. A lot of the countries that keep the community engagement as a given. We're not a country that has community engagement of our elders. You know, we don't mix as families like we used to. We don't have that intergenerational approach like a lot of countries do. They've got it already just by their lifestyle. As a path, Australians have taken a different lifestyle. We're very insular with our little nuclear families and, and we all move around. It's a big country, but we all do move around. You move interstate, so we're not living like the European countries, which are closer and you're with the family and, you know, the, my big fat Greek wedding. You know, we don't have that as a standard social approach to our lifestyle. So therefore, we have to implement, the word's gone out of my mouth. Community. Yeah, we implement community. We have to do hybrid community things and we've done them well, yeah. but we've got but my mother, who's 87, very fit and active, 87-year-old, national senior. She's on every seniors committee. She plays aerobics. But she does it in these little siloed, you know, Monday I've got that. and It's not a collective community approach. So I'm not saying it's not there. I'm saying it's it's not there as an automotive response and the amount of people who are exposed to it often get it too late. They get it when they're lonely and isolated and someone comes in with a community solution for them, but they're already on a downward decline because they've had so many years before it being socially isolated and not having wellness programs and not having ageing programs. A sad a sad state for my family is my mother-in-law went to an aged care facility on the decision against my husband and myself by his other siblings into a dementia unit. So I think there is so much good work being done now by a lot of fantastic providers in Australia with active ageing and um, implementing assistive technologies and having this real preventative approach. I don't think we're telling them well enough. We're telling them, but oftentimes we're telling them to each other. Yeah, We're not telling them to journalists, I know we try and try and try and good news doesn't sell, but we're not telling them as an Australian approach to our aged community. Mm, mm, mm. Even the, mm. the media narrative around the, oh. the Royal Commission, you know, there, there was some horrendous stories that needed and should be investigated and dealt with. But I, the impression to me was that that was the norm Rather than the exception, and I, and I, as an active participant in the industry, I, I struggled with that a little bit because I see some really good work as well. There's some brilliant work. Yeah. In Australia. You go to an a um, ACPAR conference, I was about to say ACSA or later, an ACPAR conference. All those, you know, reading abstracts, all these magnificent 
good news stories. Recently, we've got the... So going back through SAGE, with all that exposure to all those international countries, I was nominated to join the Global Ageing Network, which I did six years ago. And then during COVID, I became the chair. So we've got our conference coming up in three weeks up in Scotland, which I'm going over to and I'm taking a SAGE delegation over to England. Going through a lot of the abstracts, so I was on the committee of picking the abstracts to read it, so many abstracts I was reading, and because I've travelled so much and gone to so many other countries, I was reading some abstracts and thinking, this is not news, it's been going on for 20 years. Yeah, and, yeah. and even when we think we've got a bad system, knowing what we're doing in Australia, even some of the abstracts that were being presented, I thought, oh, no, I know, you know, TLC is doing that down in Melbourne, Victoria. So I forget that everyone hasn't had this exposure to all these models. Someone's put in a um, vegetable garden on the rooftop and I think, oh my God, I must have seen a hundred vegetable gardens on a rooftop. It's not innovative. But how come these people are still writing abstracts about that as being innovation? So how well are the 99 people who've done that before not telling those stories, those yeah. really good news stories? And again, you're right, the Royal Commission, I think no matter how hard we tried, we could not get the good news stories. A lot of those people who spoke at the Royal Commission gave fantastic examples of changes and things that had been implemented. Not one of them made it to the press. Now, we can't be responsible for that. I think we have to just accept that was the media. I think now we're getting more and more journalists involved in our big conferences. I went to a conference, the Property Council Retirement Living Conference up on the Gold Coast recently. They had a journalist from South Australia. She's then contacted me to talk about SAGE since. She was really fascinated about the dementia cafes in Japan where people with dementia run cafes. Right. And using those skills. Yep, and yep. So she contacted me out of that and I said, that is just fantastic then she wrote a story for the Adelaide Advertiser so little I'm not that's got nothing to do with me that's got the industry using journalists as our being involved in some of our industry events because so by osmosis they're, they're hearing good news stories yeah yeah um, they're the stories that need to be told mm. uh, as, as well and like I said I'm not downplaying some of the the, the, the bad news things and the, the 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 poor quality of care that was around in some places, but it, I don't think it was universal to the industry. Well, it's but not it, even don't think, Nick, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. I laughed the other day. I got off a plane and I said to the flight attendant, I think, what, what the flight attendant, that was a fantastic trip and you were really, boy, you know, she was really good. I noticed her watching, you know, dealing with a few customers and I thought no she was great and I, I'm going to tell her she was great so just as I walked off I said oh that was a great trip and gee you've done a good job or something and they slid up she said have a nice day Do you know I was walking down I'd stopped to do something so by that stage a lot of the other people had come past me two people said oh my god that was a shit trip I thought they same trip same trip and I was thinking there you go I thought that was one of the best trips that Qantas had given me in a long time and I'd noticed the difference and mm, mm. they were almost back to normal. And this person, nothing to do with me, they were just walking past, talking to each other, said that was the worst trip they'd had. So, Talk to me about Anchor Excellence because Anchor Excellence now owns Sage. That's right. And uh, that's fairly recent, this, this year. This year. And so, so what, who's Anchor Excellence? 
what do they do and, and how does, why does SAGE fit within that so well? Yeah, it, another interesting journey, Nick, one of those right place, right time conversations. Um, Anchor Excellence was started and the managing director is a lady called Cynthia Payne, who worked as a CEO in the industry for 20 years, I believe, and before that nursing background and um, some of the staff that worked with her in the organisation she was CEO with now work at Anchor Excellence. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I do love it. It's We're an all-female organisation, yeah, okay. which is interesting. Yeah. And that's not an anti-men in any way. It's just how it's evolved. And then I think it's the the nature of the... That may well change, but, but I love that at the moment. But that's not saying that, you know, there's a big deal about it, but it is a nice a nice factor to the organisation. But I'd rung... So during COVID, SAGE stopped, obviously. Yeah. We couldn't travel anywhere. SAGE was started and supported by Thompson Adset for 17 years. During that time, I left Thompson Adset. The downturn had happened in building and architect. Fine, lovely leaving. You know, we kept our relationship going. And I went to work for AXA. And I went to work for AXA, the peak association at the time that I thought AXA and LASER would be merging or AXA and ACA would be merging. So we went along to the first board meeting and what happened was LASER was born. So now we had AXA and LASER and I was working for AXA thinking I was going to be working for a joint peak association and SAGE would come under that and everything would go on their merry way. So AXA then took over the running of SAGE with the support of Thompson Adset and in a um, memorandum of understanding with LASER. So the SAGE product was never really anything other than me managing it and it had a name and Thompson Adset supporting it, but now I'm working for AXA, so AXA are supporting it in partnership we did with Thompson Adset. So COVID hit, I was no longer working for AXA or Thompson Adset, but I had part-time kept myself available to run SAGE and COVID hit. So when COVID started to look like we were coming out or we the world started to look like we're coming out of COVID, I started to get a lot of inquiries from industry members going, is there a SAGE trip? You know, we're ready to go. The Royal Commission's happened and we want to go and look at lateral learnings and what's happening around the world. So here was me who had the passion for SAGE. I'd run it and managed it for 17 years, but I didn't own it. It wasn't a company. It was a name. It was an mm. event. Mm. It was an event. And well, what do I do now? And ACPAR... AXA and LASER had just merged. So ACPAR were too new to really, they had a million things on their agenda. This is at the end of last year. So I did talk to them about taking over the program, but it was too early. And, you know, as I said, they had so many things to deal with, with merging the organisations, but I was still getting asked, what's happening? When's it going? And I said, well, if we're going to run one in 2023, we need to advertise it now, but I can't advertise it. It's not my company and I don't want it to be my company. I never wanted it to be my company. A million people have said you should run it yourself, but I always wanted it to be industry-led by industry for industry. So I was in a bit of a dilemma thinking, well, it's going to fade, you know, if we don't get it up and going this year. So I had rung Cynthia to chat about this, knowing that she'd been a previous board member of LASER and she'd been in the industry for a lot of years and she knew about it and she'd been on a trip just to chat and say, I just want to brainstorm this out loud and you're a bit 
one removed from me. I mean, she wasn't in my inner circle of colleagues, certainly in my next circle. Yeah. So I thought I want, I don't want my friends close inner circle because I know their perspective. Their perspective is, Judy, run it yourself or do it with the peak. And I was saying it's too early for the peak. And so I rang Cynthia and she said, let me, let me think about this. And and I knew Anchor Excellence. I knew their, um, their professional services organisation. They're right at the forefront of best practice because they look at accreditation. They look at pre- preparation for accreditation. They took, walk people both being prepared for accreditation and organisations that have been sanctioned. So they have to have a really holistic, supportive approach to the industry. And they had it in aged care, not in retirement living, but aged care. So... I had also talked to them about the the merging of integrated services with retirement living, and I thought there was opportunities for Anchor in that area. Cynthia um, is a brilliant businesswoman. She also knows the industry. She rang me back the next day and said, Judy, I've been thinking about your dilemma. Why doesn't Anchor Excellence manage SAGE? And I said, well, that's perfect. I think that's a perfect solution because... Anchor is about professional services and education. And Thompson Adset has said, ran it and supported it and managed it for all those years. And I've still got a brilliant relationship with Thompson Adset. They are now the diamond partner on the SAGE program while yep. it's with Anchor Excellence. So it wasn't saying Thompson Adset couldn't do it, but I thought in where it needed to be sitting in the industry now, it didn't need to be owned or managed by a organisation that it was a supplier organisation of almost everyone was focused on getting themselves back after after COVID. So when Anchor Excellence said this, I said, I think that's a brilliant home mm-hmm. because it is that fits in everything you're doing, with, which is Anchor Excellence is about industry best practice and supporting and being ready for accreditation and being ready for solutions for best practice or solutions how to meet um, all the standards and so I think that's perfect. I'll tell you now within two weeks it was done dusted with a lot of support and the legal framework around it with industry legalities. There was no resistance from Thompson Adset. I said if we do this somehow we've got to keep Thompson Adset's name recognised but we've also still I still want it to be industry led and I thought well that works perfectly. Anchor Excellence are a supportive partner of ACPAR now. They've joined the Property Council Retirement Living. And I said, this is brilliant because then we can run programs for the Property Council Retirement Living. We can run programs for ACPAR. We can run programs for those supplier organisations that were... I had a couple of supplier organisations that wanted to say, Judy, come and work for us and run the SAGE. And I said, it's a, I love your company, but I don't think it fits. So those organisations now want to run their own bespoke for their clients, Sage Pro. So it was a brilliant fit. And now that was at the beginning of this year. By the time all that transpired, it was sort of April. So it was probably too late. We, I was very enthusiastic. I ran and put out a program like I would have 218. So this year we've got a trip going in three weeks to the UK and then we'll go on to the Global Aging Network Conference, which is going to be fantastic. And there's a lot of Australians there anyway presenting. Uh, we've got a tour at the end of the year to New Zealand, which is almost booked out. I like to take eight to ten. We've already got 11 registrations for that and two people going to their board. So if we got that, we kept them at 15. We right. don't want to take any more than 15 people for the very 
reason that SAGE is all about boardroom discussion and interaction with the executives when we get there. It's not a look-see program. So any bigger than that becomes too hard to have that very deep dive around a management table when we get to another country mm -hmm. or, and go and visit their organisations. So we've got New Zealand. We had advertised a trip to Japan in November. We've had some bookings, massive interest, but I think we'll have to postpone that for next year because we can't run them unless we've got a minimum number. And um, again, I think I was too optimistic thinking. But already now we've planned next year and we'll take that to market in the next month so people can look and look at date savers. And what we will probably do is open that up for registration at the ACPOW conference, I yeah. hope. Yeah, mm. good, good. And so if people want to get involved with any of these tours that are coming up, you've got, you've mentioned the UK, I assume it's sold out, New Zealand's nearly sold out, and then there's some coming up, but how should they find out more information if they want to get involved? The Anchor Excellence website, and it's got study tours. One of our tabs along the top is study tours. We've got a media partnership with DCM Group Media. I think words back out in the industry that Sage is back again. It's happening. But definitely the Anchor Excellence website or the Sage. We have Sage LinkedIn that people can join and follow. Yeah. That's growing and actually that's grown. Well, that shows me the interest in the last two months. That's I think we've had 60 new members join and a lot of those are people who have said, can you tell me when the 2024 programs come out? Yeah, good. And, and as you say, I think you know, Thompson Headset clearly did an amazing job for mm. a long, long time there. Absolutely. And, and now with the baton being handed, handed over to Anchor Excellence, Cynthia is an incredible visionary, and mm. an incredible leader, working with somebody with your knowledge and background. I think it's exciting to see what happens with Sage next. Really exciting. And I think Anchor Excellence too also have their leadership programs. So this fits perfectly into... So that's really exciting. And we've introduced a national... SAGE program for retirement living, so going around the country looking at, so people from Queensland can go down to Adelaide and we've given each of those tours a focus, so one will be model of care, models, differing models like land lease and build to rent mm -hmm. retirement living. Another one will be operationalising care, so how do you operationalise care into retirement living? So we've bought that national program, really excited about that. That's going to be for early next year and people can come on the three programs or just the one, but we'll go to Brisbane, Adelaide and Sydney for that. So what are you doing in your spare time? Yeah, yes. cruise. <laughs> yeah, cruise. Cruise me. I must tell you a funny <laughs> story. My husband's now a cruise ship captain or an expedition cruise ship captain from left the Navy quite 20 years ago and continued his maritime career. And before COVID, we'd go to dinner parties and people would say, what? What do you do? And I'd say, oh, my husband's an expedition cruise ship captain and I work in the global aged care industry and run these SAGE tours and people would be fascinated. You know, oh, you've got a great life. Post-COVID, what do you do? Oh, I'm a cruise ship captain and I'm in aged care. Yeah, nothing. And, and could you pass the bread, please? <laughs> <laughs> Which again is stigma, isn't it? Isn't it? To aged care and, and yeah. you know, so many good news stories in cruise ship industry, yeah. so many positives, and but all we heard about was the bad. But yes, but we found that very funny to say, so we have to say to Pete, well, let's just say we, we garden and do something else. But yeah, what do I do in my spare time? I cruise. I join Pete on, on our expedition ships. Yeah. 
Judy, always great to talk to you. And I, and I love our conversations. And I think this has been uh, one that people are going to enjoy to listen to. And there's a lot to learn and a lot yet still to learn. Mm. So, uh, so thank you very much for your time. I do like to finish off with all of our guests with just a bit of a fun question. And that is, you're hosting a private dinner party. Who's on your celebrity guest list? Oh, God, I hate these questions. <laughs> you know, I don't need a private dinner party. I need a room. Yeah. I need a party so I can network and, and flit. Do I think of this often and then I can never really pin it down? I, I'd have Richard Branson. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, just Good Richard one. and I over a candlelit dinner. I think that would work. <laughs> no, I'd, no, I'd have Richard Branson. And then I often think, you know, people sit there and say, oh, Princess Di. Love to have Princess Di. Well, I can't anymore, can I? But could I have? I would have. For all sorts of reasons. Yeah, Richard Branson, Princess Di. I think I think I could I could leave it at those two. I reckon that's a full room right there. Yeah, so yes, imagine someone else. I wouldn't get all the questions and answers that no, exactly. I that I'd wanted to know. No, there's a million people you could have, but isn't it funny you think what comes into your brain first? And they're the two that came into my brain first. Yeah. So, no, I tell you what else I'd have Chris Fagan. Ah, Say, yeah. can you remember? Yeah, remember when I beat you <laughs> in the swimming? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jude, always lots of fun. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Nick, I'm I'm just thrilled that that you're doing something like this for the industry, and I, I feel very honoured and privileged to be invited. I do. Talked your leg off, you know that. You know, don't. Well, Nick, you could come to my dinner party. Yeah. No, but thank you for even doing this for industry. This is the sort of thing I know. So many of it. Um, organisations are doing this but you're taking a lead in another direction I think it's fantastic and I am privileged to be here and on behalf of Anchor Excellence thanks for inviting me yeah welcome thanks mm. I hope you enjoyed today's chat you can find us on Spotify Apple wherever you listen to any of your podcast streamings and we'll catch you next time on Better Ways for Living <laughs>